Hey, Culture Hackers. Happy Friday, if you're listening on Friday. It's Robbie Richmond, and I'm here alone this time because I wanted to do one alone. I've been having fun on these interviews, but also realizing I've got more to say, and uh, and I've got a podcast, so I can do that. So here goes an alone podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. And I got to say, I have no idea, honestly, no idea who's listening to this. Because on a blog, you can kind of tell, you can add those Facebook like buttons and see the comments. and But, you know, you guys are listening on the go and not doing these things. So if you feel like reaching out, I'm at robert at cultureblueprint.com. Would just love to hear if you've got any feedback, um, both positive or negative, anything would just love to hear it. So I was thinking for this individual one, I had a lot of fun with the last one, if you heard it, the conversation with Michael. It was fun, and we ended it with a song, and I'm going to do that for these individual ones, as well as add hacks, because this is all about hacking, right? And hacks are fun, and they're great, and the way I define a hack is something small that you can do that has a huge impact. So low investment, but high impact, and it's almost like this shortcut process. So the one I'm going to talk about right now, I might do this either at the beginning of the shows or end of the shows, but I'll tell you one right now. So this hack, at first when I heard it, I got to say, it made me angry. My friend Charles Plank introduced it to me, and he was laughing as he said it because of his own discovery with this, and I literally got angry and fought him on it. And I said, no, it's not that easy. And he's just laughing. Oh, yes, it is. It's that easy. And I fought him and I was so angry. And the thing about this hack is it totally works. And it doesn't get easier each time. It's kind of like the cold shower. Like I love the result of cold showers. It's invigorating. I just feel so so lean and strong and fit. But each time it, it sucks going into it. I don't really get used to it. So it's the same kind of thing for this hack. So this is a procrastination hack. It's very simple. And so here's how it works. How it works is you just do it. I know, it's ridiculous, but I found so many ways just not to, right? But very productive ways like cleaning my room, making all kinds of calls, doing all kinds of errands, etc. Avoiding that thing that I know I have to do. And yes, sometimes you need to chop it down into smaller tasks or maybe talk it through with somebody. But it's amazing how much I'll have a task that I need to do for weeks and I'll finally get to it and it'll take me like an hour, just an hour. But I was sweating it for weeks, thinking about it, avoiding it, putting it off, seeing it on the either the email list or the to do list and thinking about it and thinking about it. And it's amazing just how much brain time it uses up for that kind of thing. When at the end of the day, there wasn't any kind of thing that changed. I just did it. So try that out, write it on your hand, do whatever you have to. Like I said, I fight myself on it. I, I, I say, no, I'm, it's not that easy. There's, there, I add some kind of complicated layer to it or reason that I can't. You know what I often do too is I will, um, I'll, I'll need to do something and suddenly, all of a sudden, I have to have chocolate. I have to have dark chocolate. And I'll think, uh, sometimes you know, I'm, I'm just aware of it that it's coming on when I really need to do something. Sometimes I power through and I do it and I use the chocolate as a reward. That works. That, that does tend to work. Other times I'll think to myself or convince myself that if I don't have it, I will be thinking so much about the chocolate that I won't really focus on the work. And so sometimes I will have the chocolate 
And then the annoying thing to discover later is it, you know, it, the chocolate placates me so much. And I don't know if it's the dopamine or what neurotransmitter chemical cocktail theobromine is going into my brain. But suddenly that itchiness that I had to do that project or that task, it's, it's gone. And it's almost like the chocolate makes me okay with not doing it or putting it off. Like until that point, I knew I had to do it and then I eat the chocolate and then I didn't feel like I have to do it. So doesn't really work. Again, going back to the just do it hack. All right. So that was the hack. Um, today, I want to talk about a topic that I've touched on a few times, and I want to kind of tie a bow on this because it's just been circling through my brain and in a lot of conversations with people. It's this idea I'm calling anti-marketing, but it's not really anti-marketing because the problem with quote-unquote marketing is that it's been um, combined too much with advertising and sales, and that's... I don't think and in some ways that's even part of marketing. It's just the smallest part. True marketing is really about positioning and getting to know your customer and understanding them and creating and reiterating, etc. But when we think about marketing, we always think about advertising. And whenever I see anything advertised, it feels to me like somebody at school saying, I'm really cool, you should hang out with me. And who does that? What cool person needs to do that? You know, it's, it's this kind of counterintuitive notion, but to me it makes a lot of sense that if it's not something that people really want and they're already talking about it, then you got to go back to the lab. you got to go back and figure out what that is and what's not working as opposed to going through the marketing budget to figure that out. I certainly learned that at Zappos where, um, you know, the early stories of Zappos.com was about cutting the marketing budget. Because the company didn't have the money to spend on Super Bowl ads, which is what dot-coms were doing in that day and age to get known. So the company said, what if we just pour that money into the company, into the customer experience, and see what that's like, and see if people really resonate with it. And if they do, now this was the 90s before a lot of social media. I mean, we're talking, you know, Friendster days here, right? But if they do, they'll tell people. And we'll get more customers that way. And it was a bet, especially at that time. And, and a huge bet to, to have the 800 number on the homepage and have no call limit times and you know, do anything it takes to really help the, the customer. No .com was doing that. But it was this investment of time and energy into the experience as opposed to spending a lot of time into the marketing, which to me, when it comes down to it, that advertising and sales, it gets into manipulation, Think about that. It's it's just how do I get people to buy my shit? And if that's the message we're getting, how much do we really want to buy it? And how much do we really want to be convinced? Who goes out looking for how can I get convinced today? When you know you want that car, that BMW, that that Porsche, you already know you want it. And then you, if you're going to buy it, you want somebody to convince you more just because you want more rational reasons to follow your emotional impulse. But without that emotional impulse, it's nothing. Does that make sense? So I've, I've been seeing it across the board with, with some examples of major success. So take Facebook. I mean, it's what, four or five times as big as the United States right now in terms of its population? It's insane. And yet, at the beginning of Facebook, you couldn't get on Facebook. You could not be a customer of Facebook 
if you wanted to because you had to be at Harvard. And then you had to be at universities. And only years later did you actually even have the opportunity to be on it. As opposed to if they did a big startup launch and said, hey, everybody, here's my social network. Same thing happened with Tesla. So with Tesla, started with, what, a $150,000 car, a sports car, a completely impractical car to get a lot of attention. But also to say, look, if you don't have one hundred fifty grand cash, you're not really one of our customers. So stay out. You can watch us from the side for now. And only now, years and years later, are they talking about introducing the consumer-level car. Starting small intentionally. Building a really core, passionate base. And that takes a certain kind of discipline. Not to try to get everybody to buy your shit, but to actually work with the customer, with the product. You know, it's kind of that, that idea of the bands that are a quote-unquote overnight success, and yet they work 10 years to get to that point. I think that's the kind of thing with our own products and services as well. Is when, when I hear somebody saying, how do I get more customers? How do I get more leads? How do I get more attention? Is that really the issue? Or do you really need to think what is remarkable about what I'm doing? And how can I figure that out if I don't know? And if I don't have something like that, am I really in the right business or in the right job? Points to consider. Now, of course, we could use data points to help us figure this out. One of my favorites is NPS, Net Promoter Score. This to me is fascinating because it just beats the whole survey world. I remember I got a survey from Bank of America that was like 20 pages long, question after question. I couldn't even see when the thing was ending. And I just couldn't even imagine them even using this data. What are they wasting my time for? And so Fred Reichheld and Bain Company figured out this idea of the difference between satisfaction and promotion. The difference between satisfaction and promotion is, let's say you're driving that Toyota Camry. You're satisfied with it. We'll ask you, hey, are you satisfied with your Camry? You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. That's one level, but that's not the level that makes something grow and shine. Because if we ask, okay, what is the likelihood that you would tell all your friends and family that they should get a Camry? Whoa, that score drops down a lot. So Net Promoter cuts through that crap and figures out, do you actually have something worth scaling? Because it asks the question on a scale from 0 to 10, how likely are you to promote this to a friend or family member? And then the follow-up question is not past-oriented, what do you like or what do you not like, but it's a future action-oriented question of what would make that a 10? What can we do better? What can we live into? And that gets people into an imaginative place rather than a critical place. Incredible book called The Ultimate Question. It's all about this, but it's really that simple. You can Google some simple um, uh, applications about it. I think it's even built into SurveyMonkey and Typeform as something for small businesses. If you're more medium or growing, Hello Customer is a solution. Um, there's um, there's more and other I'll have to think about for the show notes. Um, but these are out there. And they're easy to use, and it's easy to understand. I gave you the gist of it there. But it's a metric. It's an actual way to keep score because it's the percentage of promoters minus the percentage of detractors. If you vote 0 to 6, you're likely to talk crap about it. If you vote 9 or 10, you're a promoter, and 7 and 8 is only neutral, meaning you won't talk crap about it. So it's a potential score of positive 100% all the way down to negative 100%, and it varies per industry. But it's a great way to keep score. 
and just have an element of truth as opposed to anecdotal, as opposed to when we kind of fall in love with our own products and services. I heard a great quote from the founder of Balsamic uh, Interface Design Tool who said, fall in love with your customers, don't fall in love with your product. Because when you fall in love with your product, then you, you get too emotional with it. You get so emotional that when it gets high, you, you think it's the best thing ever and you don't see its flaws. And when it gets low, you get way too down and don't see the ways to improve it. But if you fall in love with your customer, then you can keep evolving the product to meet their needs. And um, just to cite a few other examples with this, this is pre-social media days. I remember I saw this quote from Dr. Dre that said, um, if everybody on your block isn't listening to it, then it's not going to scale to the rest of the country. Again, before social media, right? Because now you can have other ways to scale it. But it's, again, this idea, if it's not working small, it's not going to work big. The other example I like to use is the Obama campaign. I read this amazing article. I wish I could cite it or find it, but it was this was early days, first campaign, right? And um, they were saying that in the early days of it, the Washington Post, New York Times would call up and say, hey, we want to get an interview with Obama. And they said, no. And they're like, what? We're... The Washington Post. Like, we know, we've heard of you, and we're not going to give you the interview. And they actually said internally, if we get the endorsement from the New York Times and the Washington Post, we're dead. Because they didn't want that mainstream endorsement at first. They wanted to build it such that the mainstream had to take notice. So they intentionally went with that grassroots approach. And I find it fascinating when we have these opportunities even to go bigger. These opportunities, these temptations to say yes, and sometimes we do it, you know, for the money, for the glory, as opposed to what's best for the business or the product and how we scale it. I, I, when I think about this, when I, when I talk about it, I think it's, I think it's just such great news. It's, it's permission for us to not have to pressure ourselves to go big. You know, I think there's a lot of go big, go home, do it, you know, but that's not necessarily the way success works. Success works by starting really small. It's in the garage. It's in the lab. It's tinkering. It's working direct with customers. That's where success starts. It's not on Facebook ads. It's not on marketing. It's not on the branding and design. It's on do you have something of value that people want to share. So I've been thinking about that for my own work um, when I talk to people, um, when I see people just broadcasting their stuff out there. And um, I was at this Habit conference, and, and one of the, uh, the speakers who'd invested in Facebook and other companies said, look, everybody's obsessed with growth. The metric you should be obsessed with is retention. If you can retain customers, that is the biggest indicator of long-term growth. So thinking about it, there's... Um, there's many ways to think about that customer experience. My friend Joey Coleman has a um, a framework called First 100 Days. It's all about the first 100 days of having a, a customer and all the emotional points that they hit when they're considering it, when they buy it, when they think, oh my God, what did I get into, when they need support. And um, it's an amazing system that he has. Um, but as long as you're thinking systematically, you're going to get there. I mean, I highly uh, advise working with him. He's amazing. Um, but just think, what what are those touch points? when they first hear about it, when they first try it. Because those first 100 days are just so crucial 
as to whether they're going to stay and whether they're going to promote. And it's one of those things, too, where if you invest a lot of time up front, you won't need to later on. It's amazing how much that's the same about a lot of things. Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, would tell me that when you meet somebody early, spend a lot of time with them because you build up that relationship that is then there for the future. And I experienced that with him. When I first got to Zappos, he was calling me all the time and saying, hey, I'm down at this club. Come on out. You know, what are you doing? And I, I, I moved, when I moved to Vegas, I didn't even have many friends there or plans. And so I would just, you know, 10 at night on a Friday go out and we got some, some crazy times. And, um, you know, we don't hang out that much anymore. But in those first, like, three or six months, it really created our relationship. And um, we have these fun memories to, to think about. Same thing with your customer. Try investing a lot up front just knowing it's an investment. I know you want to think about that next customer and how do we grow and how do we do the business development and the sales. Try focusing on the current ones. Experiment. See what happens because that I've seen is the paved road to success. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about since I helped a friend with this recently is I don't know if anybody, if you're feeling tired if you're feeling chronic fatigue, if you're feeling down, if you're not feeling like you have a lot of energy, um, I think one of the most undiagnosed diseases in this country is adrenal fatigue. It amazes me that most doctors don't even test for it. You have to ask for it oftentimes if they've heard of it. It's a simple test just to see if your adrenals are functioning well because if they're not, it's hard to do anything. And the problem is everybody getting addicted to sugar and caffeine, it just masks the problem because it's just making it worse in the long term, even though it might feel good in the short term. So check it out. Google it. See the symptoms. You might have that. Um, what's amazing, too, is, the, is the, the way to turn around. It's simple. It doesn't always happen fast, but it can. Um, one is that, oddly, the most important thing that the book found on adrenal fatigue is that you sleep no matter what, between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. Because those are the times your adrenals are resetting. So giving yourself rest during that time will allow them to store up much better. The other is having a ton of vitamin C. They actually recommend as much as you can until um, you know, it has certain effects on your digestion tract. Um, but several grams, at least, of, of vitamin C. Not too much sugar with it. Um, reducing, of course alcohol, sugar, and caffeine, which is probably the hardest part for most people. Um, it doesn't have to be forever, but you know, it's kind of like being in a ditch and digging yourself deeper if, uh, if you're experiencing it. So at least limiting it to, to one a day, if not cutting it out while you're recovering. Another surprising hack for this is um, oftentimes people with adrenal fatigue wake up a lot during the night. You know, You go to bed at like 10, wake up at 1, and then you're up every hour. And the hack for this is you're waking up because um, you, the book has much more scientific terms for this, but you basically need more uh, energy. You're getting hungry, and, and you're, you're waking up with that potential to eat because your, your fuel stores are low. So if you eat um, something high fat, it's like a log burning into the night before you go to bed um, or a half hour before going to bed, something like a couple tablespoons of um, almond butter on a cracker, um, that kind of thing can really help you just stay asleep through the whole night. And then last, something that uh, it, it's been covered in the Bulletproof Diet, if you've read that, this is a great 
technique. Salt has gotten such a bad rap. There's a table salt is really bad. There's there's additives. It's not really very natural. But actual real salt, like Himalayan pink salt, um, Irish gray salt, the brand called Real Salt, Sea Salts. These these actual real salts without any kind of additives or chemicals um, are very good for you, especially if you have adrenal fatigue. Um, if you think about it, a saline kind of solution conducts electricity, whereas a sugary-based solution kills electricity. So um, having a half a teaspoon to a full teaspoon of real salts um, and a glass of water in the morning, tremendously helpful. So these things, the 6 to 8 a.m. sleeping, having this glass salt of water, as much vitamin C as you can handle, um, cutting out alcohol and coffee, and then eating that high-fat snack before you go to bed or a half hour before you go to bed. Um, that's basically the highlights of the book. So if you don't want to read an entire book on adrenal fatigue, that's it. That, that's what you got to do. Um, you can have big results that way. So that's it that I had planned for uh, for this solo podcast. In the future, I might just do more of these, see what comes out of my mouth, start ranting, um, following in the footsteps of, of other famous podcasters. Uh, so thank you so much for, for, for listening. Up, upcoming is a song my brother introduced to me from Bell and Sebastian called Your Cover's Blown. And this is one where it's best heard on a really great sound system, really like loud, and just in a full wide sound. This is, And I got to say, this is a big pet peeve of mine, that people have really shitty sound systems. You know, you can spend so much money on a house, on your decor, on your furniture, these things that are there for touch and for sight. But hearing is such a big sense that we use, and yet people don't get a decent stereo or de- and decent headphones and decent speakers for their TV, and they're, they're happy with the shitty sound. And it's amazing to me how much more you can hear with a good sound system. I remember it specifically in these moments, like Stevie Wonder's song Superstition, I used to hate it. I mean, just be repulsed by that song. And then one day I heard it on this amazing sound system. And it was like I was high on drugs because I could hear every single instrument. I could hear the intentions on each layer. And it was just this incredible sound. And now I love the song. And I think that's what there's so much more expansion to love music and movies if we're hearing it through something that really gives it the respect that it deserves in terms of sound systems um sonos i think is fantastic what they're doing with their wireless systems amazing sound comes out of those if you see those speakers in terms of headphones check out if they have it at the apple store by you the the master and dynamics md40 i believe it's called whatever it is 40 there and just plug your own ipod into it or iphone and uh and listen to a song and, and hear one of your favorite songs through those headphones versus your crappy ones. And you'll start to see, like, it's amazing how it can get you high, like this great sound. So if you, if you have something good and wide, listen to this next song through that. Um, it's just a fun, weird one. And I'll be introducing more kind of just off the beaten path music to you guys so thanks for being with us hope you have a great weekend and keep on hacking so how do we know each other and how do you have my number well why don't you guide me you be the driver say what you want and leave your shyness home and you should do what you want
Listen, lady, leave the boy home. Cancel all operations. Tell your friends there's more to you than this.